Good morning, church. If you are a guest, uh, we want you to know that we uh, believe the Bible is the Word of God. It is not a word, it is the Word of God. And we believe studying the Bible makes us stronger and better and healthier people. So we're in a series right now in 1 John. And I'd invite you to find a Bible if you don't have one. There should be one in the pew. You can turn to page 680. And we're going to be reading from there in just a moment. A powerful, powerful text that is going to be relevant to all of us. And I'll explain why in a second. We make a lot of fun of lawyers. We're going to talk about how important they are today. How important it is to have a good lawyer. Now someone sent me this piece recently that you might appreciate. It's the top seven signs that you need a new lawyer. For example, if just before the trial starts, he whispers, Now the judge is the one with the little hammer, right? You need a new lawyer. Uh, Whenever his objection is overruled and he tells the judge, whatever, you need a new lawyer. If just before he says, your honor, he makes that little quotation mark sign with his fingers, you need a new lawyer. Uh, If you catch him playing his Game Boy during the trial, that's a bad sign. If he picks the jury by playing duck, duck, goose, that's not good. When the prosecutors see who your lawyer is and they high five each other, that's a bad sign. And most of all, if during your initial consultation he tries to sell you Amway, you need a new lawyer. Actually, the phrase good lawyer is not an oxymoron. We tease lawyers, but almost every lawyer I've ever known was an outstanding man or woman, especially those that were following Christ. The fact of the matter is, if you ever need a lawyer, you want him to be good. And the fact of the matter is, Everybody in this room, starting with me, needs a good lawyer. Because everybody in this room has sinned. And so this morning, we're going to hear some good counsel from John about our need for good counsel. And so look at chapter 2. We're only going to read two verses this morning because it's so rich. That's as much material as we can cover. And here's what John says. My dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now keep your Bibles open because we're going to be looking back at this text several times during this teaching. But it says, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Now, actually, that's just one word in the Greek. It's the word paraclete. It's only used by John in his writings five times. And it's translated this way in the Revised Standard Version. And it's a good translation. It says, we have an advocate with the Father. And that's a good translation because that word paraclete was the word in that day for lawyer. For counselor, for someone who would defend you before a judge. And so what John is doing is he's imagining a court setting. Now, God is the judge, and you are standing before the bar of God, and your prosecutor is the devil. 
Now that's a fitting metaphor because the Bible says in Revelation 12, 10 that he accuses the brethren night and day. So Satan is constantly bringing before God charges against you. And those accusations don't stop when you become a Christian. He says, now I'm writing that you won't sin. And that's our goal, not to sin. But he says, we're going to sin. The fact is, write this down, that a Christian should sin less. But we'll never be sinless. We will never reach the point until Jesus returns that we don't need someone to defend us before the bar of God. In fact, here's the thing. In some ways, as Christians, we're more burdened by a spirit of condemnation than non-Christians. Before I was a Christian, I wasn't even aware that I was violating the law of God. But now that we're walking in the light, we are more aware than we ever were of all the ways in our lives that there are darkness present. And so we have this spirit of condemnation. And here's the thing. Condemnation does have grounds to assault us. Because we all stand justly accused. Beginning with me. Of violations of the holy law of God. See, that's what sin is. When you wrap it all up, sin is violating God's perfect will and law. John will say later in chapter 3 verse 4, All sin opposes the law of God. And man innately knows this. I think all men innately know that someday we're going to stand before a higher power, a higher authority, and we're not going to be able to claim complete innocence on that day. You see, Satan, the adversary, the accuser, he has compelling evidence. He has unquestionable, documented proof, undeniable, conclusive evidence. That everybody in this room, starting with me, has violated the laws of God. Not just before we were Christians, but even after we became Christians. Now, in light of such testimony, men are going to have to stand before the bar of God and make some kind of defense. Now, here is what most men are going to do on that day. They're going to defend themselves. And I can already tell you what... The most popular defenses are going to be. Some are going to use the defense of victimhood. They're going to say, in light of my circumstances and the terrible consequences that I was dealt with. This was all I could do and all I could be. Therefore, I throw myself at the mercy of the court because I'm a victim. That's one defense men will make. Another defense men will make is to compare themselves to other men. They will stand before the bar of God and say, yes, I have violated your law, but not nearly as much as that guy over there. He was a lot worse than I was. And that will be their defense. And then probably the most popular defense is going to be this one. Men will stand before the bar of God and say, yes, I violated your law. But on the whole, when you look at my life, I did a lot more good things than bad things. On the whole... Most of my life, I was doing good things and not bad things. And that will be their defense. And I'm reminded of the saying that's attributed to Daniel Webster. A man 
who serves as his own attorney has a fool for a client. Long ago, a wise man named Job understood the folly of thinking a man can defend himself before God. Look at chapter 9. Job says, how can a person be declared innocent in the eyes of God? If someone wanted to take God to court, would it be possible to answer him even once in a thousand times? For God is so wise and so mighty. Who has ever challenged him successfully? And so, I want you to listen this morning to some good counsel. You need a lawyer. You need a lawyer appointed by the court of God to defend you. And the good news is, the appointed one is the anointed one. John says, your lawyer is Jesus the Christ. You see, when Jesus ascended into heaven, folks, he did not go back to heaven to retire. He went to heaven to represent you before the bar of God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24 says, For Christ has entered into heaven itself to appear, when church? Now, before God as our advocate. And get this, he has never lost a case of anyone he's defended. And I want to show you why. He is the most brilliant defense attorney of all time. Now, the first thing you've got to ask yourself, though, is why would he even take the case? John says it's because of perfect love. It's not because we can pay him back. What can you do to adequately reimburse Jesus for being your attorney? Why would he take your case? The Bible's only answer is to point us to a love that is so holy and so faithful and so transcendent that our little brains can barely imagine it. Look at what John will say later in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. God showed us how much He loved us by sending His only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. And this is real love. It's not that we loved God. It's that He loved us. And sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You see, when they put Jesus on the cross, He didn't stay there because of nails. He made the steel that made the nails. Nails don't hold God. Love does. The only way to explain the fact that Jesus is willing to be your attorney is love. The heavenly Father sent the Holy Son because he couldn't stand the thought of spending eternity without the rest of his children. And so the cross declares that you're loved. It's just hard for us to imagine. Because... I have never in my life been completely, totally, unconditionally loved by anybody. And I have never completely, totally, purely, unconditionally loved anybody. And neither of you. 
At some level, all of our love has in it some performance base. And so we think that's how God loves us. Yeah, God loves us, but if I could just do this, He would love me more. If I could just stop that, He would love me more. And what the cross says is that's wrong. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Jesus takes your case because He loves you. But you've got to understand something. Even if that's why he's willing to take your case, that's not why he can win it. I want you to imagine, for example, that if my fleshly brother, Mark, was charged with a crime and asked me to be his attorney. And I stood before the judge and I said, Your Honor, I love Mark. I love him. I would lay down my life for him. I love him so much The judge might be impressed with my love, but he's still going to convict him if he's guilty. Because that's what judges do. Now let's suppose the judge is our father. And I could say to the judge, I love him and you love him. He's your son, he's my brother. Therefore, please dismiss this charge. If my father is a just judge, he can't do that. No matter how much he loves the accused. Love alone can never effectively defend without justice being compromised. Here's the dilemma. Our advocate has to defend and honor and preserve the holy law of God. And you broke it. And so how is God going to be just and you not pay the price? Well, John says it wasn't just a perfect love, but that your attorney offered a perfect plea. And here's what's interesting. Usually in court, the prosecutor says he's guilty and the defense attorney says, no, he's not guilty. Your attorney doesn't do that. He agrees with the prosecutor that you're guilty. He doesn't plead innocence. He doesn't plead extenuating circumstances. He doesn't call you a victim. He doesn't say that you're better than most people. What he does is he presents his own life as grounds for your acquittal. Arguing he's already paid the deserved judicial penalty for your violation of God's law. And the reason this plea is effective is because of One little phrase we read, I want you to look at the end of verse 1. He says that Jesus is the Christ, the righteous one. Now, why does that matter? Well, for two reasons. In the first place, it means that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He never broke it. Imagine that. He never, by deed, by word, or even by thought, not one time did Jesus violate the law of God. Romans 5 says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many, you and me, were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus The many, you and me, will be made righteous. 
You see, Jesus couldn't take your penalty if he had to pay his own. So when John says he is the righteous one, the first thing he's saying is he never broke the law, unlike us. But the second thing he's saying is that not only did he perfectly fulfill the law by his obedience, but he perfectly satisfied the law by his death. Galatians 3 says, Christ took away the curse the law put on us. He changed places with us and put himself under that curse. Now, it's just hard for us to believe that plea is perfect enough. And that's why men come up with religion to complement the defense of Jesus. We come up with ways that we can do things to impress the judge just in case the judge is not impressed with Jesus. Maybe you saw, for example, a couple weeks ago in the paper, an article about the decision recently of the Catholic Church to reintroduce the practice of indulgences. Now, you may not know what that is. In fact, if you're a Catholic under the age of about 50, you don't know what that is because the Second Council of the Vatican in 1960 did away with it, but now they're coming back. It was a practice for centuries in the Catholic Church. And here was the idea. That even if you've done all of the things you're supposed to do, you've gone to confession, you've done your Hail Marys, you still, as a sinner, can't go straight to heaven. You've got to go to purgatory and pay for your sins for a while. But if you, through pilgrimages or good deeds, win indulgences, you can shorten your time in purgatory or maybe even skip it. Or maybe you can apply an indulgence to someone else who's already died and shorten their time. Now, obviously, that concept's not in the Bible, but why would people be attracted to the concept? Because we struggle to trust our attorney. That his defense is enough. John says what Jesus has done is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. That the reason there's no condemnation on us is because He took the condemnation on Himself. He says He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I like the way it reads from the message, verse 2. It says, He solved the sin problem for good. See, the accuser is trying to charge you with crimes that have already been judged and paid for. And so what Jesus is doing in his defense, he is giving the judge a way to uphold his holy law and at the same time extend his wonderful love. But this is very important to understand. It all results... And a plea for perfect justice. Now last week, Jonathan in the story of the woman caught in adultery showed the great need for mercy. But we're not in a courtyard this week. We're in a courtroom. And this week, the need is justice. See, God's Holiness has to be satisfied before you and I can be justified. 
And by the way, and I almost hate to bring this point up because as soon as I do, I'm going to ruin some of your favorite songs. But justification is not pardon. Now, I know some of our favorite songs have the word pardon, and we're going to continue to sing those songs, but I just want you to know pardon is not a biblical concept. You were not pardoned. You were justified by Jesus Christ. And justification is the declarative act that the standards of the law have been met. Let me illustrate it this way. Some of you are old enough to remember when Richard Nixon left the White House in disgrace. He broke the law. Even though he was charged with protecting it, he broke it. And he left the White House. And right after he did, the next president, Gerald Ford, pardoned Richard Nixon. What does that mean? It means he never went to jail. He never paid the penalty for his crime. But he broke the law. It wasn't justice. Nobody paid a penalty for breaking the law. It was pardon. Now let me tell you another story. Back in 1865, Howard Mudd, who was a physician just outside Washington, D.C., had a knock on his door in the middle of the night. And there was a strange man standing there with a hurt leg. It was broken. He asked the doctor for help. So Dr. Mudd set the leg and set the young man on his way. He did not know the name of the man. It was John Wilkes Booth. He had just assassinated President Lincoln. Troops later caught up with Booth in the barn. He was killed. And the whole nation was angry because there was nobody to punish for the horrible crime of the assassination of the president. So they found Dr. Howard Mudd. And they charged him with aiding and abetting a criminal. And they sent him to prison. Now, the next president, Andrew Johnson, later pardoned Dr. Mudd. And he was allowed to leave prison. But that crime was on his record for the rest of his life. That is where the phrase, his name is mud, comes from. For several generations, Dr. Mud and his family bore the shame of complicity in one of the most horrible crimes in American history. Many years later, President Jimmy Carter reopened the case. And after reviewing them, he made this pronouncement. Dr. Mudd, weighing all the facts and having in my ability the power of presidential decree, I rule him as justified. He did no wrong. He merely carried out his obligation as a physician. What's the difference? Now you go try to find his name in the records. You can't. There is no record that Dr. Mudd ever committed a crime. He's not pardoned anymore. He's justified. Do you understand that the death of Christ was as much for God as it was for us? Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. God gave him, Jesus, as a way to forgive sin. Through faith in the blood of Jesus' death. Now God did this. Now watch. So he, God, could judge rightly. 
And so he could make right any person who has faith in Jesus. Another translation says he did it to demonstrate his justice. This was the brilliance of the defense of Jesus. That God could be a right and holy and just judge. And you not be punished for your crimes. December 26, 1944, a great act of heroism took place that wasn't honored until almost 30 years later. Lieutenant John Fox, I believe his picture is on the screen now, was a forward observer for the 360th Infantry Regiment. He noticed a surprise advance of German troops that his regiment was not prepared to repel. And there would have been great loss of life. And so he radioed in for rocket fire. And the radio operator said, that's your position. And Lieutenant Fox says, there's no time. And he radioed again, fire. And the rockets came. Right on top of Lieutenant Fox's position. And later they discovered over a hundred dead German soldiers. And the advance was repelled. And many American lives were saved. Because he called down fire on himself. To defeat the enemy. And to save his brothers. Now I want you to understand. What Jesus did on the cross. He called down the holy, the just, the righteous wrath of God on himself. To defeat the enemy. And to save his brothers. And so at the cross, justice fell. But it missed you. Now this is our advocate's argument. And he's never lost a case. It should be noted though, his defense is useless as long as you try to defend yourself. His blood cleanses sins. Not excuses. And not man-made arguments. Paul says his argument is sufficient for the whole world but it's only efficient for those who ask Jesus to be their counsel see his defense is our only hope but it is a certain hope which I guess raises the final question then and that is Why do his clients then still struggle with a spirit of condemnation? And you know what I mean. Maybe you're driving in your car. Maybe you're just taking a shower. And suddenly you are flooded with the memory of the last time you broke the law of God. And you're filled with shame. And the next thing you know, you're nervous about your relationship to God. And that's from the enemy. He's accusing you. And the question I'm asking is, why does he do that if he can't win the case? If he can't 
change the outcome of the trial? Why does our prosecutor keep accusing us? Here's why. Even if the devil knows he can't steal your salvation, he knows he can rob your joy and your assurance. And that's why he keeps accusing, and that's why the church is filled with timid, fearful, pitiful little Christians who are afraid to pray, afraid to walk bold, afraid to witness. They have no joy. And if that's you this morning, John has some good counsel. The next time the prosecutor starts to assault you, here's what you do. You just affirm the testimony of both of your counselors. You see, you have an eternal counselor who never stops defending you. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, Who is he that condemns? Of course, the devil. But Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You've got an eternal counselor who never stops defending you, but did you know you also have an internal counselor? Who never stops encouraging you. I told you John used the word paraclete five times. One time for Jesus. Four times Jesus used the word for the Holy Spirit. Look at John 14, 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. Who will never leave you. Chapter 15, verse 26. Now I will send you the counselor. The Spirit of truth. And He will come to you from the Father. And He'll tell you all about me. In other words. Whenever the adversary begins to assault you. Jesus said I'll send the other counselor. The Holy Spirit. And He will live in you. And He is the Spirit of truth. And He will speak into your heart. The truth that you need about me. To repel the assault. There's a story they tell about Martin Luther walking down the road one day and the devil met him. And the devil pulled out this long list and says, you know what this is, Luther? And Luther said, what? He said, it is a list of all the sins you've ever committed. And Luther says, well, surely I've committed more sins than that. You better go back and do more research. And so the devil came back with an even longer list and said, now what do you think, Luther? And Luther replied, devil, you write across that list in red ink. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us of all sins. And this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. To speak the truth of what Jesus has done into your heart. So that you will live with hope. And you will live with joy. And you will live boldly. Because you see, you are well Defended. We need to thank God for good counsel. Let's do that right now. So Father, now in Jesus' name, we thank you for Jesus. 
For so long we have, we have dreaded the thought of someday standing before your bench to see your scowl and your disappointment and your frustration with us and worrying about what the verdict would be. And but Father, we repent of that false picture. We look forward to the day when we stand before you with Jesus at our side to see your smile and to see the glow of your pleasure in us because of what Lord Jesus has done. And we pray, God, you would help us recover the joy of our salvation. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, has spoken for us. Give us, God, this confidence, we pray, this week. Because this world needs the witness of people who have some good news. We pray this for the honor of Jesus. Amen. Now we're going to sing and thank Jesus for what he's done. And as we sing, if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, you're not going to defend yourself anymore, but you're going to trust in his defense. Come, confess him, be baptized today and wash away your sins. Our elders and ministers will be back at the chapel. If you would like to pray with someone today, go back and see them while we stand up and praise the Lord.